This week on Hacker and the Fed, we break down the SolarWinds hack. There are eight new vulnerabilities found in SolarWinds. Thousands of remote IT workers have been working for North Korea. Hackers are targeting a company that handles data requests for law enforcement. And we answer listener questions about VPN services, password managers, and patch management. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks that caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner in Naxo. Check out naxo.com for all the exciting things we're working on. I'm joined, as always, by Hector Monsegur, friend and podcast co-host. Hector was a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for as many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are things going for you this week? Oh man, pretty well. Super busy. Lots of uh, lots of things kind of churning and a lot of wheels going around and around. But can't complain. How about yourself, my friend? Good, good. Yeah, you had lots of cybers this week, huh? And you have uh, lots <laughs> of things going on in your personal life. And so, yeah, you're 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 a pretty busy guy. Oh yeah, I got some traveling this week, which I'm not too uh, excited about, but it is what it is. So, oh, where are you headed? I'm heading to the good old city of Seattle, Washington. Oh, that's a long flight. That is a long flight. Am I looking forward to it? No, but I know we have a lot of friends out there, so I might as well say hi and and you know show the city some love. Sure. Are you uh, doing? Do you have any downtime while you're out in Seattle? No, I'm flying in, handling some business, and flying right back out. Ooh, th those are tough ones. Oh man, let me tell you, I'm not like I said, I'm not too excited by that. I'm looking forward to Puerto Rico again, hopefully soon. Yeah, a little bit different between Seattle and Puerto Rico. <laughs> so I think my only travel this week is I'm going to D.C. I have a couple of meetings at FBI headquarters. Um, sit down with some guys on uh, Monday and just talk about, you know, some capabilities that Naxo has. Um, so eh, exciting, you know, but, uh, but, a, but a lot easier travel than going all the way out to Seattle. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I have to say I would rather go to D.C. than Seattle, but <laughs> we don't piss anybody off. Uh, not that I don't like the city. It's just a flight, man. That's a solid for, for, for where I'm at in New York. That's like a solid six and a half hours plus the waiting, you know, and everything else. So do you have a direct flight or do you have to lay over somewhere? Yeah. Thankfully I have a direct flight. I, that was my condition. You guys want me to fly out there? That's fine. Just, you know, make sure it's right. So, well, hopefully you have a little bit of downtime. You can, you know, get, they have good coffee out there. You can uh, maybe go to the fish market and th have a fish thrown at you. Uh, it sounds like you're going to turn around pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm trying to leave. I'm trying to get back here by the time this episode airs. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. So, well, hopefully you travel have travel safely and, uh, and everything goes well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. So what's going on in the... Uh, in the cyber world, there's a lot of cybers happening. A lot there? of cybers happening. Well, we got a lot of good feedback from our show, Breaking Down Hacks. Uh, so I thought maybe this week we're going to start off with Breaking Down the Solar Winds Hack. Ooh. Do you remember this okay. one? Yeah, no, it was a pretty big one. It caused, uh, caused a lot of uh, 
busy weekends and frustrating nights for many IT security staff around the world, for sure. So, yeah, so let's give a little feedback for the audience for getting into the Solar Winds Act. Um, so, Solar Winds is a major software company based in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they provide system management tools uh, for network and infrastructure monitoring uh, and sort of other technical services. Um, so, the Solar Winds hack was triggered uh, as a much larger supply chain incident that affects thousands of organizations that included the US government. So, again, we have hundreds uh, of thousands of organizations around the world using a software um, that allows the IT performance uh, monitoring software called Orion, um, which was made by SolarWinds. SolarWinds Orion is running a privileged uh, escalation within the system. Um, you have access to a bunch of things. Uh, and so you can see why hackers want to go after it. Of course. I mean, it's what we're seeing now today, right? We're seeing that a lot of enterprise or widely, broadly used software, enterprise software, are being targeted for zero-day research and then, of course, mass exploitation. There's a bunch of them happening literally as we speak, Chris. Um, products from, you know, Cisco and, uh, and uh, you know, some, uh, some VPN providers and some other stuff that's going on that's, that's really bizarre. I mean, in essence, it's like, uh, you know, if you're able to compromise an element of such software, that's highly privileged and, and widely available, in a way, you're also compromising large parts of supply chain at the same time. It's pretty intense. It's very effective for the bad actor. Um, and it's also terrible for the people managing uh, thousands, tens of thousands of assets. Because now you have to deal with tens of thousands of potentially compromisable assets. So, yeah, I mean, th this attack is, is particularly, you know, terrifying because not only are you getting, you know, access into solar winds, but because of you're infiltrating their systems, um, you're now gaining access to networks and systems of, of thousands of their customers. So, you know, the target of this particular hack was uh, more than 30,000 public and private organizations, which included local and state and federal agencies um, that all use the Orion network management system to manage their IT resources. And so SolarWind customers weren't the only ones affected um, because, again, like the hack exposed their users um, and the hackers would potentially gain access to their users' accounts and datas um, and as well as their partners. So it kind of trickles down um, from, you know, going into the software, putting in the malware, and then getting into those customers and those customers' customers. So a large attack vector for this one just at the very beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it like this, right? So if you are the bad actor, you're targeting a large audience, you're looking at the software that this audience is likely using. So let's say in this case, you're, you're targeting the U.S. federal government, um, and you're also you know interested in local governments, depending on the state and city, obviously. Um, you would want to target a software that, one, is being used by them, two, is trusted by them. Um, and then, of course, three, can you compromise the actual vendor and if so, are you able to propagate malware from that vendor's network? Um, and so what the attackers did, um, they were able to get access to a software development system. Um, and from there, they spent just months kind of identifying a way um, to implement a botnet or a command and control um, um, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure that would allow the attackers to then insert Trojans, backdoors, payloads, what have you, into um, the Orion software update process, okay? Now, what happens is if you are a customer at that time when this happened, and we're talking about between 2019 and 2020, um, 
you know, if you, in a funny way, if you didn't update your software, more than likely you may have avoided this. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's not, that's not what I recommend, by the way. Make sure your software is always updated. Um, but in this case, that kind of backfired for, um, you know, security mature organizations that made sure their software was updated. Because this is how the attackers were able to kind of propagate their malware across various networks. And, and let me tell you, once they installed the, the malicious updates, I'm talking about the customers or the victims, um, you had different payloads that were being installed in the systems and it gave access to the attackers remotely. Imagine like if you, you know, you're, you're in your backyard and you're about to do some work in the backyard and you pull out your hose, right? And, um, you know, on the hose, it's patched, it's broken, but you have it all, you know, you have it all um, uh, just jerry-rigged, right? And, you know, as you kind of turn on the, the hose and now you're getting a, a sprinkle of water, um, and you start applying more pressure, you get more and more water coming out the hose. Okay, so now you're visualizing this. Now imagine if your neighbor was able to patch into the, the let's say, the base of the hose without you noticing, um, and they put a, a even smaller hose attached to it. Um, you know, as you're kind of turning on, in this case, updating your systems or running the software, the attackers are also getting access to that same water source as it's coming out of your main hose. It, it's 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 effective and it works. And a big shout out to the companies, the vendors, the researchers that had identified this attack. Um, you know, it's 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 pretty bizarre that um, that something this large happens. And I think that there has been a ton of different consequences, right, Chris? Aside from breaches, there have been lawsuits and all sorts of things that took place. Yeah, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so, so we're talking about this is a standard supply chain attack uh, where where the bad guys got into a piece of software, inserted a malicious code, and now with the victim company um, pushing out those software updates, the patches, um, now we're infecting all the customers. Uh, and so the malware that they put in there could be used to access uh, system files. Um, it also could blend in with legitimate, you know, SolarWinds activity uh, without de detection. And even it, it ran checks for antivirus software. Um, and it made sure that like forensic tools weren't being run. Um, it's, uh, it was a pretty sophisticated piece of software. Um, but just to break down the timeline. So we have September of 2019, the threat actors gain unauthorized access into SolarWinds networks. Um, then the next month in October of 19, the threat actors uh, tested initial code injections into Orion. And then finally, by February 20th of 2011, the malicious code known as Sunburst, um, that's the Trojan they used, um, was fully injected into the Orion patches, uh, the software updates. And then about a month later, on March 26, 2020, uh, SolarWinds unknowingly started sending out the Orion software updates uh, with the hacked code. Um, and then uh, around that same time, uh, more than 18,000 SolarWind customers installed the malicious updates. And so we have now have the malware spreading through all the customers undetected. Um, and hackers began accessing SolarWind's customer information technology systems, which they could use to then install even more malware to spy on the companies. So now they have an... You know they have their in uh, the the that's been propagated by SolarWinds itself to all of its customers, which included you know government departments such as Homeland Security, uh, the State Department, uh, the Commerce and Treasury were all affected. Uh, private companies such as FireEye, Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, and Deloitte also suffered from this attack. Yeah, yeah, the list goes on. Well, so the, I think one of the downfalls of this, and we'll see it why, is uh, FireEye. Um, you know, you started going after you know cybersecurity companies that have a research angle, 
Um, and so that may have led to the detection a little bit earlier. Um, so FireEye was the first company to detect the breach. Um, they confirmed it on their own systems and within their own customers um, that they saw the malware coming in. And they labeled the SolarWinds hacks as UNC2452. So you know, Hector, when people start talking about old UNC2452, you're like, oh, shit, that's SolarWinds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. And I, I got to say that the coverage here, when you start hearing the different targets that, that Chris here um, has kind of laid out for you, um, these attackers, you know, unlike the, like the CC Cleaner breach that we, we talked about plenty of times in the past, um, with the CC Cleaner breach, those attackers were looking for very specific targets. In this case, again, going back to the water holes analogy, um, the targets were pretty much absorbing as much access as they could to whatever they could, right? Whatever, they could get access to pretty much any system that had updated their software um, and, and had become infected with the um, malware strain sunburst. Um, I could imagine from the attacker's perspective, you know, it was, it was definitely trying. There's no way. And I've been in a situation where I've, I've had, you know, dozens or hundreds of reverse shells hit me at the same time, right? I've dealt with that before. Um, it is extremely noisy, depending on their command and control platform and how they used it. Um, it probably was extremely noisy and even maybe ineffective for the attackers. Now, that doesn't mean they were successful in, in leveraging that access, but I could imagine that from their perspective, it was like, you know, getting bombarded or, <laughs> or getting a, a distributed denial of service attack themselves from all these different uh, victims. You know, and the, I think the one point that I also want to convey here is that, you know, I've, as, as a bad guy who did target security companies in the past, right, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proud of that. There's always a 50-50 with that, right? As you're targeting a security company, they're either going to be extremely, I would say, passive, right? Like, hey, we're a security company. We're not going to get breached. Or they've, they've implemented all sorts of controls to kind of mitigate or minimize the damage. And then you're going to have a company like FireEye or others like it that are very proactive in their approach to security. And so when you... Had okay when you look at like the hacking team hack that happened several years ago or similar, you know that was more of a passive scenario. The attacker got in, they were able to leverage a bunch of resources, access, and exfiltrate a ton of data. That was a good example of a company that probably was not prepared for a breach versus a company that was prepared for a breach. So big shout out to the FireEye team that identified this um, this incident and uh, and provided information upstream to those that needed to know. So yeah, FireEye now has so they've seen what's going on. They they kind of figured out where it's coming from. Uh, they found the backdoor in SolarWinds was and, and called it Sunburst. Um, Microsoft also confirmed that it found signs of the malware on its systems and on its customers as well. Um, you know, micro, Microsoft's own systems were being further attacked, uh, but Microsoft denied the claim, uh, even though you know FireEye and others were seeing Microsoft systems get hit by it. Um, but later, the Microsoft worked with FireEye and GoDaddy to block and isolate versions of Orion known to contain the malware and cut off the hackers um, from the customer attacks. They did this by, by turning off the domains uh, that were used as the backdoor malware on Orion as part of the SolarWinds attack into a kill switch. So the kill switch were here to serve as a mechanism to prevent Sunburst from operating further. So they're basically null routed um, any of the DNS communications, um, the, the names. Um, so let me ask you that. So putting in a hard-coded uh, either IP address or domain name into the malware, um, what, 
what does that get you? I mean, as far as these guys designing Sunburst, um, and you know, it has to talk back to a control canister. You got to give it some sort of communication channel, but um, hard coding it in so it can't find another route um, sort of kind of limits it once it's found out. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, what the attackers did here was offer uh, indicators of compromise, so IOC to uh, the malware researchers or researchers in general. Um, and, you know, think about it from the attacker's perspective, right? Let's think about this for a second. The attacker is able to compromise this massive software company. They're able to then implant uh, a backdoor mechanism into their update system. Now they're compromising the supply chain. Okay. Then they're dealing with a ton of, you know, incoming communication from potentially compromisable hosts or victims. Okay. So now they have to create software that's going to be able to execute on the victim endpoints or their systems, the workstations, whatever you want to call it. And they need to, they need it to work and they need it to work very well. So if you hard code host names, DNS names, domain names, and you're able to do some trickery around that, like, hey, you know, generate a new date timestamp, um, you know, based off of the current time minus, you know, uh, arbitrary time. It, you know, and then that's base, that's base 64, or sorry, base, uh, um, you know, well, base 32 coded or something. Um, now you're able to create DNS records that do not have meta characters in it. Okay, fantastic. Now, you know, with all of that being said, you know, the attacker is now able to kind of, you know, create um, guessable by the by the malware host names that they should be able to connect back to. All right. So it's much easier than implanting an IP address because an IP address, what happens there is very similar to what happened with the domains here is that now network operators, owners of entire IT blocks like uh, you know, there's a mailing list, you know, Nanog, right? Now they, these guys can get involved and start no routing IPs. And disrupting communications. Okay, so with DNS, you have a similar issue. With internal IPs, you also have the similar issue. So, how would an attacker create software that automates the connecting and potential exfiltration to a destination without it being an indi indicator of compromise that can be reversed and/or no routed um, from the defensive perspective? And there are not many options, Chris. It's actually very difficult. Um, this is why you had malware in the past, like back in the early 2000s, Code Red. Code Red infected like a large number of the internet to the point that it slowed down the internet. Um, some of you that have been around for a long time may remember what Code Red did to the internet in terms of speed, in terms of you know dealing with it. Um, the actors that put that together or those similar strains um, realized that using a C2 for the compromise may not be a good idea. So instead, they just created a malware payload that would, once infected, once executed, would just scan the internet for random IPs until it hit servers that were vulnerable and then re-attack and then propagate, right? So can an attacker or could the attacker have done that with the Orion or SolarWinds breach? Yes, they could have, but it would have been extremely noisy. So again, goes back to my point. There are not many options for an attacker in this position. And this is why when they're doing big supply chain attacks, you notice that as soon as they get in um, and as soon as they deploy that malware sample, they start to operate quickly, which is the opposite of what happened with SolarWinds. Because according to the timeline, the attackers had access 
to their network in what, 95 days plus, right? Yeah, for quite some time. So so in, in cybersecurity, Hector, right, maybe it's used elsewhere, but I've only heard it in cybersecurity and, and, and breaches, is the thing called dwell time. And it's, it's the time it takes between when an attacker is able to gain access to in the time the attack actually is discovered. So is, do you know if dwell time is reused in any other context besides breaches? Is it like a military term or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen it used in cyber as well. I can't give you military uh, perspective because I, I was in the military. I'm sure they. I'm sure if we could speak to like a, a military sure. red teamer. Oh man, that'd be great. I'm, I'm sure you have somebody in network that has done that work. Sure. Um, yeah, we'll find somebody. We'll, we'll interview them. But going back to the point, right? There has been uh, a lot of discussion and research around compromising a target network, okay, and then kind of sitting on that access for X amount of time. The assumption is that eventually logs, evidence of the breach will probably be rotated depending on the client, depending on their backup policy, depending on um, retention laws in that target uh, industry or company or even if regulations apply. And in most cases, what attackers see is that within three months or so, 90 days, um, companies start to rotate their logs. So I know that these attackers were in SolarWorks for longer than that, but that's what I've seen in terms of dwell time. I'm a hacker. I gain access to a system and I sit on it for more than 90 days because I want the logs to roll off, right? Does that give you an indication that my initial access was not through some sort of zero day that could be, you know could be patched within those 90 days or like, does it give you any clue of how they got in or, you know, based on, you know, I'm not concerned that I won't have access 90 days from now. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Right. So let's look at it like this. It all depends on the attack vector and the entry. So assuming that it was like, let's say a web web application vulnerability and let's say the web application is running on an Apache server or Nginx. Um, and then those web server logs go into the SIM and then the SIM goes, you know, it's, 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 I don't know, it's managed by something, but it's also backed up into some sort of backup solution. Um, so at that point, the attacker would, one, try to gain access to the SIM, try to get access to the web server, um, and, and get root on the machine itself or, or, or a system of privileges. And then they would try to manually modify or maybe even delete the logs themselves. But if they can't, right, if they assume that there's a backup solution in place, and they cannot breach that backup solution. They're going to wait um, uh, estimated time. Okay, so the general idea is: well, a lot of companies rotate after thir- uh, ninety days, which is three months. Um, some some organizations, some I would say, adversaries will wait even longer, four, five, six months, because logs are very heavy and very expensive, right? In terms of storage, there's a business cost to storing logs. Um, so yes, as the attacker, you would sit and you would wait until those logs are rotated and you have some sort of confirmation they are, or you, or you make a heavy assumption. And then at that point, there should be zero logs or evidence of your initial entry, Chris, which is the basis of your question. Um, now, with those logs non-existent, if, if the attacker um, passed up the initial vulnerability, okay, but they've, they've maintained access in another way, meaning they've created a backdoor in the software they targeted or the person they targeted, then the hope is if an investigation takes place, logs are not found, then the IT staff will not make enough changes that's going to remove that long-term persistence. And if it does, they lost access, which the, what attackers like these guys do not want, right? 
Sure. So talking about dwell time, the, the attackers in this one, they first gained access to the solar wind systems in September of 2019. And then the attack didn't go, become public until December of 2020. So 14 months after the fact, they had, you know, unfettered access. Um, so CrowdStrike at the time said the average dwell time in 2019 is about 95 days. Um, so 14 months really exceeds this this one. So it took well over a year before they, they were found out of the breach of the solar winds. Um, so uh, why it took so long to detect the attack after the after it was because the sophistication of the sunburst code. Um, and so, like I said before, uh, Sunburst made attempts uh, to connect out to the command and control server, um, and the malware executed a number of checks to make sure that anti-malware or forensics analysis tools weren't running uh, in order to be found it. So I found one quote saying why Sunburst was so sophisticated. It said, analysis suggests that by managing the intrusion through multiple servers based in the United States and mimicking legitimate network traffic, the attackers were able to circumvent threat detection techniques uh, employed by both SolarWinds, other private companies, and the federal government. So this quote saying that these guys were able to stay in the system so long because they used U.S.-based systems. Uh, I found that interesting. Um, I, it does make sense thinking back on it now, uh, but as an attacker and you know understanding U.S. law enforcement and cyber um, controls, um, it's a little scary uh, to be using U.S. infrastructure. Sure, no, absolutely. I mean, for a long time, attackers would send the data, traffic, whatever, or even have reverse tunnels or reverse shells to external uh, or foreign to United States IPs. Um, especially in Russia, because the assumption is that, you know, the Russian authorities or the ISPs are not going to respond to subpoena requests or information requests. But in this case, the attackers were confident enough that they created infrastructure locally here in the United States, and they use that infrastructure for exfiltration. Obviously, from those machines that they created, they probably sent it out to wherever they sent it out to, most likely Russia, right? But even when you look at the sunburst technical details, the malware itself it was written in a way to avoid detection or evade detection from the jump, right? Things like the fact that it was written in C Sharp, um, that it, it used uh, native libraries, um, that it used specific techniques to avoid detection from like antivirus or, or uh, endpoint detection systems at the time. It used things like using custom encryption algorithms uh, to encrypt this code, encrypt this data. Um, it used a variety of techniques to hide its presence on the system. Uh, such as using like stenography, right? We don't see that often. We always heard about stenography being used for, and by the way, I'll explain what that is in a moment. We've heard um, from researchers that stenography could be a very interesting way for an attacker to hide themselves amongst the system. Um, and stenograph stenography is the use of, uh, you know, hiding in plain sight. Meaning, imagine if you took the Mona Lisa and you were able to write on the Mona Lisa a secret message in a specific ink that can only be seen using a very special light. Not black light, because black light is obvious, but a very specific light that would trigger something, a chemical in that ink that would show itself, right? Um, that's how these guys kind of use stenography for evasion. And then, of course, they would use things like uh, DNS tunneling or HTTPS tunneling for hiding traffic amongst real traffic. I got to say, Chris, when, when I hear the dwell time on this one being, what, 14 months? Here's what I think. I'm putting myself in the attacker's shoes. The initial entry, the assumption the assumption that this log's going to be rotated. So, yeah, let me wait a while. Um, monitoring of 
internal administrative behavior. So they were probably watching admins and seeing what they did and seeing what software they run and see if there's any pen tests still going on. Um, they probably, you know, also wanted to research the uh, update mechanism to see how they could implement their backdoor into the mechanism. So um, there was a lot of research going on in the background. I, if, if this was a nascent state attack, which I think uh, a lot of people point to, right, um, then this was likely a very big research project at some agency somewhere. Yeah. I mean, they definitely know they took the time to put initial code into an injection. So a patch went out with some sort of arbitrary code that they thought wouldn't get caught, but they wanted to see whether, you know, that if uh, solar winds would catch it before they published it. But, and obviously they didn't. So they, they took the time to do a test run. Oh yeah, absolutely. And this is something that you would not, so this kind of attack, is sophisticated in nature. We always hear about sophisticated actors, right? So I, I look at this attack as, as one that is indeed sophisticated. Um, it requires research time. Research time equals money. You're, you're, you're not likely to see this coming from a bunch of bored teenagers, okay? Um, and, and it could happen, don't get me wrong. But this is why I think you know, a lot of these indicators that we've discussed so far points of being a nation state, points of it being like, a, like an organized organization or group, um, you know, and yeah, and, and remember, once that sunburst uh, implant or the payload was executed on the system, what are they looking for? What was it doing? Um, it was doing things like, like uh, sniffing out login credentials, uh, potential email messages, which which is an indicator. This might be a, a maybe an espionage attack. Um, network traffic as well, right? Network traffic may leak certain things like um, you know uh, internal security software tools, credentials that are. are Passed around in plain text, which some unfortunate software does still use to this day. And of course, getting access to system files, which, you know, now that we know, you know, as time moved forward and ransomware really exploded into the scene, now we're seeing that, you know, the, the, um, that bad access controls on sensitive files is very problematic for ransomware victims. Um, in this case, in the, in the Orion situation or the SolarWinds situation, the attackers are also looking for sensitive files. So, uh, yeah, this is this is uh, it's an interesting one. I'm actually glad you picked this story, Chris. I think it's a good, uh, good, a good story to tell. Well, thank you, Hector. I appreciate that. Hacker the Fed is very proud to partner with DeleteMe. DeleteMe is a great company to work with. Their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Absolutely. I used DeleteMe long before starting the podcast because of DeleteMe's proven track record of removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of DeleteMe convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Data brokers are individuals and companies that specialize in collecting and organizing personal data. These data brokers are out collecting your information 24-7 from public records such as court records, motor vehicle records, census data, birth certificates, marriage licenses, voter registration information, bankruptcy records, and divorce records. Data brokers are vacuuming up social media information about you and even buying records like your purchase records, your credit card purchases. Hector and I every week talk about a new breach with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are gathering those exposed records that even include the passwords that you use. Then cyber criminals are using your personally identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit and making purchases on your credit cards. 
it's possible to request data removal on your own and to do it manually, but it takes way too much time. That's why we use Delete Me. Delete.me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete.me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete.me has over 100 million successful opt-out removal completions by their privacy advisors. Their service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. And then Delete.me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you'll receive a detailed Delete.me report in seven days. And then Delete.me scans and deletes all year long. Delete.me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing our online world. Delete.me is also a great idea for our family members. Elderly people fall for scams more easily and scammers target them based on the data they collect online. So protecting your whole family is a good idea. Through our partnership with Delete.me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with code FED20. That's FED20. Go to joindeleteme.com slash FED and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash FED and use code FED20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector, I got some awesome news for you. We have a new sponsor on Hacker in the Fed. It's Cloud Solvers, the ultimate endpoint security solution. You know how vital endpoint security is, right? It's the first thing you need to worry about when you're hacking a site or defending against hackers. It's where the action happens 95% of the time. We talk about it every single week. That's true, Chris. Endpoint security is essential for any organization that wants to keep its data and system secure from cyber criminals. The problem is that many organizations are clueless about how to secure their endpoints effectively. They keep buying more and more security tools, but they don't know how to use them properly. They may have universal endpoint management or UEM platforms like Microsoft Intune, VMware's Workspace ONE, AirWatch, MobileIron, or others, but they don't know how to configure and deploy them for maximum protection and compliance. I agree. I see that all the time in my engagements, Chris. I work with clients before or after penetration tests, and we review the technologies they have invested in. Sometimes they have gaps in their security posture, meaning that some of their tools are not working as expected. You know, Chris, back in the day, let's say 20 years ago or so, many products were snake oil or they were not marketed honestly. They didn't do what they claimed to do. Nowadays, it's not really the case. If you pay for an endpoint detection and response tool like an EDR, uh, you expect it to do, at the very least, behavior analytics or integrate with some sort of sensor system or incident response platform. But here's the thing. When you buy these tools for your organization, what the salespeople may forget to tell you is that you can't just plug and play, set it free, um, or set it and forget it like Ronco used to say on TV a long time ago. <laughs> you actually have to fine-tune these products to make them effective. And they are great, and they work, but only if you put in the time and effort to optimize them. Well, Hector, that's where Cloud Solvers comes in. They have a dedicated team of senior engineers with deep knowledge of how to configure and deploy UEM platforms for maximum protection and compliance. You know at Hacker in the Fed, we always say that 2023 is the year of the inciting threat. 
That's what you predicted, Hector. So Cloud Solvers offers a comprehensive, proactive endpoint management service that can protect your company from many types of insider errors and attacks. They have deep skills to make sure that your endpoints are continually managed and protected from both insider and outsider threats. For example, cloud solvers can ensure that USB ports are locked down, preventing an insider from copying and stealing your critical enterprise data or loading unapproved software or malware. Cloud Solvers is offering Hacker and Defend listeners a free assessment of their current environment. This is a great opportunity for anyone who's doing a penetration test of their core infrastructure or who wants to improve their endpoint security posture. Their senior architects will review your current environment and provide actionable advice to better reduce attack surfaces and harden your endpoints to internal and external threats. Contact Cloud Solvers today and let them optimize your UEM solutions to ensure you are protected and compliant. Again, go to cloudsolvers.com and click on the contact us in the upper right corner. And from there, you want to write Hacker in the Fed sent you to get a free assessment of your current environment. Hector, and if you do that right now, you'll also get a free gift from Cloud Solvers, a USB drive with a special surprise inside. Wait, 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 what? A USB drive? Are you kidding me? I am absolutely not kidding you. It's a real USB drive and a real surprise inside. Uh-huh, what kind of surprise? Well, I can't tell you that because it's a surprise, but you have to plug it in and find out for yourself. Mm-hmm, Chris, I think you're trying to get me hacked. No, Hector, why would I ever try to get you hacked? Of course not. It's a harmless surprise. Don't you trust me? Uh, I trust you. I just don't trust it. Come on, Hector. Don't be such a chicken. Just get the USB drive and plug it in. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, a USB drive from a company that specializes in endpoint security. That sounds totally legit. If you don't want the USB drive, you can at least get the free assessment. Yeah, I think I'll do that instead. Suit yourself, but you're missing out on a lot of fun. Or a lot of trouble, my friend. <laughs> That's true. Guys, support our sponsors. Glow to Cloud Solvers. Tell them Hacker and the Fed sent you and get a free assessment of your current environment. Again, cloudsolvers.com and tell them Hacker and the Fed sent you. You bring up the who, and so we're still not there. Um, the no one, we don't know exactly what it is. No one's been charged criminally, um, so we're that's still part of an open and running investigation of who did this. But you know, a lot of security researchers and uh, information out there believe it was a part of a, a Russian espionage operation. Uh, most likely, the Russia's Forest Service intelligence uh, is behind the Solar Winds attack. However. The Russian government has denied any involvement in the attack. Uh, they even released a statement saying uh, malicious activities in the information space contradicts the principles of the Russian foreign policy, national interest, and understanding of interstate relations. Russia does not conduct offensive operations in the cyber domain. I don't know if I believe that, Hector. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not too convinced either. It's my bad. <laughs> so... We're still looking to see who did it, but we're not there yet. So now the naming convention. Um, you know, I think it's commonly referred to as Solar Winds Attack, uh, but there were a couple, couple different things that came out. So Sunburst, uh, uh, this was the name of the, of the actual malicious code that was injected and planted by the hackers. 
Um, and I think both Solar Winds and uh, CrowdStrike generally refer to this as Sunburst. I can kind of see why uh, Solar Winds does not want it to be called Solar Winds and would prefer it to be called Sunburst, uh, the malicious code. Microsoft call it uh, Solary Gate. Would you call that Solary Gate? No, definitely not. So Microsoft called it Solary Gate uh, because they thought it actually the threat actor group behind Solar Winds, its name kind of was stuck and adopted by the other researchers in the media too. And then Nobelum. So in March 21, Microsoft detected that the primary designation for the threat actor behind the SolarWinds attack um, should actually be Nobelum. Um, the idea being that the group is an active uh, against multiple victims, not just SolarWinds, um, and uses more than just the malware Sunburst. So a bunch of different names for the same attack. Unfortunately, I think it's going to go down to history as Solar Winds, um, and they're just going to remember it as that way. So, a lot of these other names I didn't even heard of, uh, but before reading the articles about it, but uh, doing the research into this, but uh, but in, in my mind, it's always going to be Solar Winds. Yeah, I mean, in this this right here, what Chris just pointed out, this for the audience directly, okay? This um, point that Chris pointed out, which is um, that you know a lot of people are still going to call it the Solar Winds hack, the Solar Winds attack. Solar winds, this or that. Um, this is why you know organizations have to really take security serious. Brand reputation in these scenarios are extremely important. Uh, brand reputation in general is important for your business. If you are breached and you handle that breach well, okay, um, you're hopeful. <laughs> you're hopeful that you know researchers and the media are going to call it you know sunbursts. You're hopeful that it's not going to be like enter your company name here, hack. Because then as long as your business is in existence, um, as is without a name change, you're going to have to deal with that, that, you know, that burden that you're going to have to carry around with you. Um, and I'm sure that the company itself, you know, they lost a lot of business because of this. A lot of clients probably moved away. Um, I know for a fact that when, around this time, Chris, when all of this um, you know, information was coming out from FireEye and other researchers, I would have customers ask me because, fortunately, they weren't uh, up, up to speed with their own internal asset management, okay? Um, they would ask me, hey, why are you doing the pen test? If you notice any SolarWinds instances, can you please let us know? Do you know how insane that is that there are companies out there running software and they're not even aware that software is running on their networks, you know? It sounds insane, but you and I face it every single day in our, our day jobs. Every single day. We, we know it's true. Oh, yeah. And I, I, see, I see the products there to this day, right, when I'm doing it with internal pen tests, for example. So, you know, again, going back to brand reputation, it is a big, important um, piece of the puzzle when it comes to your security program. When you sit there and you start thinking about creating policies and deploying them and enforcing them and setting responsibilities and, and you know, putting an emphasis on accountability and all these things that we talk about day in and day out every week. You have to keep in mind that, you know, what part of your conversation would be business impact, right? Business impact is extremely important. And part of that business impact conversation is going to be brand reputation. If we are breached, what is the worst case scenario? What kind of regulations are we going to have to deal with? Are we liable for lawsuits? Is our industry regulated? Um, you know, do we require some sort of compliance? Do we require some sort of cyber insurance that we're not paying? Um, these are all factors that you have to think about when you're building your program and you're looking at your organization's security posture. So heads up on that. 
Yeah. So why was this hack so important, Hector? It was important because it was a global hack that turned a piece of software into a, a weapon that to gain access to government systems and thousands of private systems around the world, um, having access to the entire network. Um, it sort of made governments and organizations realize that um, it's not enough just to build a firewall and hope that, that that protects them from things. But one of the big things that came out of this was the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, we talk about them all the time, issue, issued a guidance on supply chain compromise and mitigations. Um, so they really kind of put out there um, that SolarWinds incident was one of the multiple attacks in 2020 and 2021 that highlighted risk with supply chain security. Um, incidents such as Colonial Pipeline attack in May 2021. Um, but they really put out there what the developers and organizations need to work together to ensure the customers have what you referred to last week as an S-bomb. Um, so a software bill of materials, also known as an S-bomb. Um, and, and describe to the audience again, what is an S-bomb and why it's important? Yeah, in simplest language, in simplest terms, what we're talking about is essentially... Uh, a catalog of the software that you developed plus its dependencies. And that dependencies could include binaries or libraries. And of course, you know, it's recursive, right? So if you're including a library into your software, you would also have to look at the libraries that that library is also including into, into that ecosystem. So it's a catalog of software versions and uh, associated dependencies. So I think we're going to see more and more of this. Um, the need for S-bombs was mandated by executive order by the President of the United States uh, in May of 2021. Uh, and it provides guidance on S-bomb best, best practices and minimum requirements. And it also mandates that the U.S. government agencies only work with software vendors that provide S-bombs. Um, so I think that's a, a good step forward. So having a list of what the software is supposed to include, um, and knowing what software, you know, dependencies or libraries that are there that shouldn't be there, uh, a good, good practice to, to move forward. Um, the legal action as a result of this in June, 2023, the U S securities and exchange commission, the sec sent solar winds, a well notice. Uh, at the conclusion of their investigation, and they informed former and current executives that the SEC intended to recommend civil enforcement actions, alleging that SolarWinds broke federal security laws in public statements and uh, in internal, con internal controls related to the hack. Uh, the company continued to distribute updates infected with APT29 malware after the initial breach. So the Wells notice states that the SEC intends to bring uh, legislation against solar winds, but is not a formal charge. And the purpose of the Wells notice is to give the recipient time to argue that the charge should not be laid. Um, but along with the government regulation coming down to solar winds, solar winds also settled a class action lawsuit in October of 22, uh, paying out 26 million to shareholders who maintained that solar winds neglected internal security proceedings that breached and misled the public about its digital security. Um, I'm going to guess, Hector, that these aren't the isn't the last lawsuit and the last thing that's going to happen to Solar Winds on this one. Um, but you know, I think there's going to be plenty more to come. Yeah, plenty more for sure. And I have to say, um, the 26 million dollars. You know, when you first read this line, you're like, okay, cool. This, you know, they're they're dealing with some sort of accountability. But we're talking about shareholders, um, people that actually hold stock or equity in their business. The um, the people that have not been dealt with yet, as far as I could tell, are the victims. And there's plenty of victims to go, go around. So I think you're right. I think there's, there's more to the story. 
It's not going to end anytime soon. There's some time here. No, and only to add to the story, Hector, and kind of where uh, the impetus for doing a solar winds breakdown comes is a story you sent over that's titled "Critical Solar Winds RCE Bugs Enable Unauthorized Network Takeovers." So it seems like uh, another incidence is happening with solar winds just this week. Yeah, hundred percent right. We had researchers that had identified a minimum of eight. Eight specific or independent, rather, vulnerabilities um, that may allow potential compromise of, of networks. Um, there's several CVEs related to these uh, to these specific reports. Uh, there's actually a, a number of them that are actually high in severity, um, and three that are critical. And three, the assumption with a critical vulnerability is that it's either exploitable, right? or would compromise the integrity of your internal network in some capacity. Um, and when you see a rating of, of critical, we're talking about like the CVSS scores, right? Um, we're talking about something like within the 9.8 rating, which usually is a high indicator. Yes, there is a problem here, my friends. Um, and more than likely, there may be exploitable vulnerabilities in this list. Um, so a big shout out to the researchers that had identified um, the vulnerabilities and a big shout out to um, the people in, in 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 charge of CVE emitter uh, and so on, and getting this this messaging out there because we need we need people to update this software and work with the vendor to kind of deal with those issues. So the software specifically is SolarWinds Access Rights Manager tool or ARM uh, for Access Rights Manager, um, and what it allows it to do is administrators can use it to provision and manage and audit users' rights access rights to data files and systems so pretty uh pretty big tool uh with wide access and a lot of power to have uh, eight vulnerabilities uh trend micros zero day initiative uh revealed a series of high and critical rated vulnerabilities in arm um, and trend micro put out the quote of uh, the most severe of these bugs would allow a remote unauthor unauthor wow trend micro put out the quote the most severe of these bugs would allow a remote unauthorized attacker to execute arbitrary code at system level. They could completely take over an affected system. While we did not look at exploitability, the potential of these vulnerabilities is about as bad as it gets. Two of the eight vulnerabilities allowed unauthorized users to abuse local resources and incorrect folder permissions to perform local privilege escalation. Uh, a few more of them opened the door for users to abuse SolarWinds services. Um, and the most concerning of the bunch lacked the proper validation and could enable attackers to run arbitrary code at the system level, the highest possible level of privilege on a Windows machine. Um, sounds pretty bad. Um, so how does a tool um, that's been out there for a while um, come out and they find eight pretty bad vulnerabilities all at once, Hector? How, how does this happen? Well, here's what happened. You had researchers or researchers individually or in tandem with each other uh, or in parallel, um, began looking at the um, SolarWinds platform. Remember, SolarWinds uh, is the company name, and they have a, this platform that has a whole bunch of different tools, right? Um, you know, if it wasn't for these security issues, I, th I would think, like, wow, this is pretty cool. They offer a lot of really cool extensions and additions to the platform. Um, but in this case, that one specific software suite, um, the Access Rights Manager tool, um, would allow, just ju judging by what's being reported, would allow an attacker without authentication, uh, without participating in authentication or having the authority um, to be able to execute commands. It's essentially like um, 
you know, back in the days when the big raids was um, compromising Linux services over the wire. Um, and if you were successful in your compromise, you would get like root pr privileges or root permissions. Uh, we would call those a remote root exploit. Um, this is the same thing in concepts, right? Um, you know, except instead of getting a root access on a Linux machine, you'd be getting the system level privileges on a Windows machine without authentication, without authorization, um, in order for it to be exploitable. And that's, that's severe. That's as, as high as you could possibly get. And I'm surprised that some of these are not rated 10.0 in the CVSS scoring system. The likelihood of exploitation is probably a little bit lower because some of these services are likely only accessible internally, okay? Especially like the ARM API. So there's a reference here to their um, the API service that's probably accessible internally. And so from the attacker's perspective, you would have to compromise a victim's network first and then identify the SolarWinds instances, then you would have to identify um, where those instances would, you know, are accessible to you, right? Because you know, you know, the idea is that customer probably has a flat network, okay? And then you'll be able to exploit the service without authentication or authorization. Mm. So well, there is another way, Hector. Oh yeah. If you're an insider threat. Ah. Ah. <laughs> I knew you'd get yes, that. I knew right. you'd bring it up again every episode. <laughs> Insider threats. Listen, man, the insider threat is very real, okay? So our next story, Hector, is thousands of remote IT workers sent wages to North Korea to help fund weapons program, the FBI says. So thousands of information technology workers uh, contracted within U.S. companies have for years secretly sent millions of dollars of their wages to North Korea for use in its ballistic missile program, FBI and Department of uh, Justice officials said this week. So this story is coming out of the FBI in St. Louis. Uh, they have cracked a case. Um, on Wednesday, saying that IT workers uh, were dispatched and, and contracted by North, Ke uh, North Korea to work remotely with companies in the St. Louis and elsewhere in the United States uh, using false identities to get these jobs. Uh, and the money that they earned was funneled to North Korea's uh, weapons program. So what do you think about this? Yeah, so I've heard stories. We've actually read some stories here of North Korean actors using things like LinkedIn or job hiring sites to compromise um, employees of organizations, uh, to compromise HR staff, okay? I've even gotten weird messages asking if I want to collaborate on security research from people that, you know, are not even connected to me. There's money involved. There's definitely, you know, organization behind this. And I'm not the only one. But going back to the, uh, InfoSec Twitter, like, you're, you're even seeing evidence of researchers saying, hey... I got this weird message from this guy who says he has an exploit he wants me to try. Or, hey, I just received this PDF job description, right? Now, what it seems here from this story coming out of the FBI and the Department of Justice is that now we have, you know, due to the COVID situation, the pandemic situation, um, and remote work becoming so popular, you know, now it seems like North Korean actors, bad actors, are getting hired for tech jobs, um, you know, again, this is opening the door for insider threat attacks, Chris. You know, hint, hint. Yep, inside threat. But also, these folks are actually working. And they're working and taking their, their salaries, they're taking their wages, and sending it off to wherever they need to send it off to. And I think that the only takeaway for me for this, uh, it, it was difficult for me reading this story. Like, I know it's definitely possible. We've seen their activity on, like, job sites. Um, my thing would be, I would love to know how 
the money was tracked? And how do we know that that was tracked to like you know a North Korean uh, weapons program? Um, I'm sure there's more nuances. I'm sure there's more back end stuff that we we really don't know. But I would love to know more about it uh, when, when that time comes. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I for some reason I kind of think maybe this was to grab a headline because once the money flows into North Korea and you see it's going to North Korea, how are you knowing that it's going to to fund a, a, the weapons program? You know, where are you seeing your inside dollars? You know that that actual money is going, and maybe maybe it is because more money in North Korea. North Korea spends money on weapons programs, so because more money's in, then they can spend more on weapons programs. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, it, it smells a little fishy to me that uh, that it's it's a direct uh, direct there, you know. So for a long time, people, you know, when I first started doing the Silk Road investigation, um, they'd ask me about Silk Road, and this was internal to the FBI, and you know, selling it and to to be able to work on the case, you know, and people were like. Well, what could you possibly buy there? And I'd be like, anything. You literally could buy anything there. Um, and people are like, what do you mean anything? And so I just came up with the most ridiculous thing I could think of. I was baby parts. Um, if you you ever wanted to buy baby parts, you could go on Silk Road and buy and use cryptocurrency to buy baby parts. You, if your kid needed a new liver, you go there and you buy a baby liver. Um, and did I ever see that? No, I never saw that. But it was used to like to emphasize that it's anything, you know. Um, and so maybe that's this, you know, money going to North Korea, you know, yada, 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 fund weapons programs. But but maybe, maybe not. Maybe they actually did trace the money going directly into buying rocket fuel or buying research into nuclear weapons or what it is. But I don't know. I find it a little strange. But but it is, was eye-opening that North Korea is using remote work uh, post-pandemic uh, to get, get money. So the FBI said that they announced the seizure of $1.5 million and 17 different domains as part of the investigation. The scheme was so prevalent that companies must be extra vigilant in verifying whom they are hiring, including requiring interviewees to be on to be at least seen on video. Um, so that that's the FBI's recommendation for the whole thing. Wow, yeah, it's it's, an, it's a hell of a story, right? Because I I myself I've been a remote worker for years. I I'm totally for remote work, but if it's going to create I would say situations like this, where um, you know these guys are going to leverage. That resource that they leverage that um, th- that capability, that working from home capability, um, then it starts to to make a lot of companies question whether or not they should offer remote work, and um, I think that's terrible. But you know, security is not convenient, so I guess uh, I guess organizations have to start kind of figuring out and improving and even adding security processes to their hiring process. If they don't. They're going to kind of repeat history and open the doors for bad actors. No, I agree. When you first sent this article over and I read the headline, I was like, oh, man, North Korea found a way of hacking people's paychecks and taking part of the paychecks away. Um, But it went a totally different angle than I expected. Yeah, no, absolutely. So next article is hackers targeting company that vets police data requests for tech giants. So there's a company called uh, Codec. Um, and hackers are going after it. And Kodak is a platform that connects law enforcement agencies with tech companies, which is designed to verify emergency requests for customer data. So there are high-speed investigations that come up 
law enforcement needs access to um, those companies, uh, to the company data. Like you need, need to get a Facebook account or need to get IP addresses being used by certain people. Um, and, and these are like uh, kidnapping cases or, or very high speed cases that, that need the answer quickly. Um, and so this this company, you know, comes in and says, you know, we're going to liaison between the two uh, and help them out. And so there's screenshots from, you know, uh, compromised accounts that show that the panel where law enforcement or in this article, they say potentially a hacker can create a new request. Um, and the screenshots also show a wide range of companies like Meta and LinkedIn, Binance and Coinbase, the crypto king cryptocurrency exchanges and uh, Pinterest, Discord, Snapchat, and even banking services like Fidelity um, have sort of some, some sort of connection to this codex. So I'll tell you, Hector, that, that some of this sounds sort of fishy to me. So I, I didn't, I, we didn't have this service in the FBI. Uh, in the FBI, we had a list when I was in it. We had a list of the legal compliance departments at all these companies. Um, and we would take our, get our subpoenas or preservation letters. So when you're, when you're doing a high-speed case, the first thing you do is send out a preservation letter. That means, hey, on this date, at this time, keep all records going back to this IP address or whatever you're, you're going after. Um, and so that 90-day rules that we, we came up with uh, that you talked about earlier, how the logs would roll off, well, they would go and pull this data down and pull it quickly. Um, and this is, a, you know, this is an order from you know, the FBI saying, um, this information is needed in an investigation. Don't, I'm not asking for you to provide it to me. Um, I'm just asking you to preserve it until I get legal authority to get a copy of it. So that's your first stage. And you serve it to these, serve it to these people, and they normally send a confirmation back that they've gotten it and, and moving forward. Then you go get your legal process. You get a subpoena or a search warrant um, that's issued through a judge. Um, the, the subpoenas are issued uh, by a grand jury. Um, you give the information to a grand jury, and using their power, you go and you get an order to give subscriber information or, or certain information. So I'll, the difference between a subpoena and a search warrant is imagine a, a, a letter I send you um, with a subpoena. I can get everything on the outside of the envelope. I can set who sent it, you know, with the return address in the upper hand corner, who is it going to, the address it's going to, the postmark, you know, what day it went through the post office and all that. Um, so so it's, it's basically subscriber information of who owns like an account, like an email account or something like that. I cannot get content. In order to get content, to see the letter inside the envelope, I have to get a search warrant. So just to give some background on the whole thing. So again, getting a subpoena goes through a grand jury. The grand jury, the rules behind grand jury information is called 6E. Um, this, is, this is in the federal system. Um, and that information is, you know, I'm using the power of the grand jury to get that information for the grand jury. You know, meaning that I, I've given them, hey, this IP address I suspect to be used in a crime. Um, and I expect that, you know, somehow connection to my investigation, uh, grand jury, can I, you know, ask this company for the information? The grand jury says I've provided enough information to that the, there's probable cause that that IP address was used as part of a crime. Um, yes, here's the subpoena go to get that information. The problem I have here is codex is not on the, the this is the company that's in between the two is not on the 6E list. So um, in order to see grand jury material, you have to be put on a list. Um, even like another FBI agent can't see it unless I add that FBI agent to the 6E list. Um, like, so if I'm doing an investigation and I do a 6E, 
I'm going to put myself, my co-case, and my supervisor on the list. Uh, and then the information goes into a separate envelope that other people can't look. And then it's filed away in a cabinet that you can't just go dig through. Um, if you look at log into FBI's, um, you know, the oh, I'm logging into the FBI system and looking something up, you don't see grand jury material. So even if it was like a rogue FBI agent, right, and and they want to get access to that request or that file, they wouldn't be able to find it or access it. They wouldn't be able to access it. Again, this is when I was there. They'd have to go to get a special key and a special to get into a special cabinet to get in. And so we had like uh, the person like in a secretarial uh, position. Uh, hey, I need access to my grand jury material. Um, sh she would go and unlock the cabinet and get in there and just get me my stuff because all the grand jury material was put in together. So, you know, I wouldn't go in there and get it myself because, you know, other agents' grand jury material was in that same locked cabinet. So, you know, a little separation. So, you know, having a company between law enforcement and the tech companies, it makes sense to make it a little bit more, you know, move along. Um, and I'm thinking about more like the local law enforcement because in the FBI, like at the big data companies, there's an FBI agent that's there. Um, you know, they are, they're welcome into there by the company and it's for these purposes. So when an emergency situation comes up, they can easily go to their contacts while at the company and explain, Hey, we have a kidnapping, um, preserve this information. We're getting the legal process right now. Um, and then getting the legal process to that one person as quickly as possible, um, uh, and getting that information back over there. So it doesn't slow down the investigators on the ground. So I see where this service is useful, but I don't know. So based off of what you said, it's just, it's just for clarity here, it, uh, a big tech company would have like a liaison, right? Someone they would communicate with in the FBI for, for things like this? Yeah, so there'd be a there'd be one or two agents that are the 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 point of contacts, and so I know the people in their legal compliance, and I'm the liaison officer, and so so it, you know so a thing this codex says is to you know it verifies accounts, um so that you know like Chris Tarbell at FBI.gov doesn't set, just send a hey I need this information here's my legal authority, it goes through someone they know already, and. I contact that agent through a known process um, on a known system, so that that verifies my account, um, and that agent, you know, knows people at whatever tech company there. Um, so, but local law enforcement, that you know, that'd be difficult for every little you know police department, you know, to have that liaison officer. So, so I guess I could see where this comes into into account. Yeah, I, I was about to say when I read this story initially, right? I thought, I said, I don't, I don't think this would be like that useful with like the FBI, right? I think it would be like used for like a small town, um, you know, law enforcement agency that's, they, you know, they probably cannot afford to have an on-call liaison for, for such cases, right? Um, so I, I agree with you on that. And that's probably the case. Maybe most of their customers uh, for this platform is smaller agencies uh, or maybe mid-level agencies. Who knows, right? I, I wouldn't know. Um, that that scene is, is I'm so far away from it. Um, but yeah, interesting story. Now, let me ask you something. So now that we have, okay, so we have this platform in the middle between these big tech companies and potentially small law enforcement agencies um, as customers. Um, if, and it seems like what, what this platform did was validate or verify these requests, okay, to the big tech companies, I can see that, that how, how that could be useful for both parties. Um, but when I look at it objectively from the outside in, and this is coming from someone that was not in law enforcement, this is coming from someone that was a bad guy at one point, it almost feels like, one, you know, you're adding another 
addition to the supply chain, but also you're expanding the attack surface of the process. That's my take on it. Am I right or wrong on this one? No, 100%. That's my gut reaction to this too. You are adding a new, you know, variable uh, that's sort of collecting all this information. Um, this is a great place to go and, and pose. You know, if you can, you can get in there and, you know, take over an account here um, that's been validated. So now you, there's your already step. You can start sending what looks like legal process. Um, you're going to start having access to see what legal process uh, even looks like. Um, and so you can co compromise that by making fake ones. Um, and, you know, who knows what the repository on this information looks like? Because if the responses are coming back from tech companies to law enforcement through these guys, um, you know, I'm just going to sit there and collect this information. You know, I'm going to collect information for targets. Targets. I'm also going to sit there and see if I'm ever under investigation. Are there requests coming in for me? Well, that that's very that's a very good point because it, it kind of goes back to, you know, our story together, right? There was a situation where a, a member of the team that I worked with had compromised local law enforcement where he lived at, and they were able to kind of monitor activity regarding our actions in regards to law enforcement and so on. Or their interests in our activities, so yeah, I could see this as as you know as being a, a potential vector for bad actors to kind of sit there and watch incoming and outgoing traffic. Obviously, getting access to the platform would also allow the attacker to try to identify web application specific vulnerabilities, so they can escalate their privileges and even take take control of the entire database, right? Um, so yeah, it kind of reminds me also of like the whole ring melodrama. Remember that whole thing that happened? Yeah, and even recently with 23andMe, where we saw that a lot of folks are their their passwords are being used for password stuffing, and and then you know these attackers are downloading their DNA data or their results and posting it online for sale. Like all of this is just bananas to me. Um, but yeah, the company CEO is former FBI. It says FBI agent in the story, but I looked him up. I, I don't think he was an agent. I think he was uh, another role within the FBI. Um, you know, his attitude towards you know uh, being compromised was sort of cocky. You know, our team previous experience building account security and ATO detection capabilities for global tech companies. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm sticking my neck out like he does, um, saying that he can't be hacked. Uh, sounds like a challenge to me, but. Yeah, it's not a good challenge to make, especially not in this space, not at this time. And I looked him up as well. It says he was with the FBI for two years in the counterintelligence unit. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I always always respect folks that have the experience and, and, and are trying to deal with a problem. It seems like him and his team are trying to deal with a problem. Uh, but again, folks, you know, as we continue to, and this, this, this not specific to this platform, it's specific to all of your organizations, right? Whether you're a big business or small business. As you start to add more and more variables to your organization, new software, new tools, remote hiring, whatever it is, you, you kind of get the gist of what we're talking about here. The further you expand your attack surface, the more opportunities you're allowing an attacker to potentially leverage those opportunities. We have to be very mindful as we start making changes to our organization, and we have to look at each and every addition or modification from the lens of, hey, what's the worst case scenario? So food for thought on that. Good stories this week, Hector. I appreciate your thoughts on all of them. Let's get into some listener questions. If you have a question for Hacker and the Fed, reach out to questions at hackerandthefed.com. Uh, Hector and I love to answer your questions. So the first one comes in from Earl. Uh, he writes, I deeply appreciate all the time you spend to create the podcast. I'm a big fan. I'm not technical, but I am concerned about cybersecurity, so I use a password manager, FIDO Keys, 
search the web as a standard user, not an admin on my personal computer, and pay for delete me services. A lot of good nice. things there, Earl. You're putting a lot of good pieces together. On the October 12th episode, you both mentioned the benefit of a zero trust and not using outsourced VPNs, but I don't have the technical ability to create my own VPN, so I just use a VPN service. I'm concerned. Is it okay to use a paid VPN service if I'm a novice and I do not know how to set up my own VPN service? Hector, you've, you've given this advice before, but put Earl at ease about using a VPN no. service and just let him know about some of the pitfalls. Yeah, Earl, let me let me tell you something, brother. Like, I think you're in a good space. I'm very glad that you've taken a lot of these actions to safeguard your personal being, uh, your personal information. Um, and of course, you know, you've taken some really good steps here. Now, VPNs are wonderful. They work very well. They're very good, right? Some VPN providers are exceptional. Others, not so much. Others are expensive. Others, not so much. Um, here's the reality, okay? If you're doing a lot of travel, if you're connecting to insecure networks like abroad or in a hotel or you're going to a convention, you're connecting to a, a network there, then a VPN goes a long way for you, my friend. OK, even if it's outsourced, even if it's uh, a service that anyone else can access, even if the service is run by someone else. OK, do I recommend it for personal use? Not so much. But if you're traveling, you take 20 bucks, you take 10 bucks, you add it to a Movad account or similar and you're going to be fine, all right? Now, there's a flip side to that. You have to be mindful. When you're using an outsourced VPN software or service, sorry, you're using someone else's computer. And even though that someone else tells you, hey, don't worry, wink, wink, I'm not going to look through your their logs, your, your, your traffic, they theoretically can, okay? Um, and they can in many different ways, uh, depending on the service, depending on the product. There are some services, and I'm not here to promote any specific service, but there are some services that take extra amount of steps to make sure that if you're connected to the network, your traffic is your traffic. That doesn't apply to all services. So do your research. Do your due diligence. There's a lot of great services out there that are going to help you. But I think for the most part, you're fine. And if you're home, you don't need a VPN, right? If you're home, your network is your network. Um, you know. And if you ever do want to learn to create your own VPN service, I think that eventually, uh, and Chris and I talk about this all the time, is creating content that you guys could just read off our website. At some point, uh, hopefully the next year, I'll be able to start writing some stuff. I'll put together some how-tos. Um, keep it simple. Keep it cheap. Mostly open source. So you can try it at home and give it an experiment. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But for the time being, I think you're fine. There are some home routers now coming with uh, VPN services on them. Have you ever used one or tried one of those? Um, I have one. Have I used it? No. Um, I would use it if I were to create my own VPN infrastructure. Um, and, and I don't really have a need because even when I travel, I have my business phone. I'm not connected to anything personal. And if I have to send a message to someone, it'll be through Signal. Um, you know, I, I make a strong attempt to keep my, my phone secure um, and update it as much as possible. And if I have to bring my work laptop, then that thing is barely used. It's only used like, you know, if I have to. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there are there are routers out there that come pre-configured with a whole bunch of security settings. They, have, they come with... Uh, VPNs pre-configured or options to add VPN software. Um, so yeah, there's, there's options out there. So the next question is from Frank. And Frank writes, I have heard you talk about password managers on the show. What is one you use or recommend? In? Recommend. Sorry, Frank. So Frank, uh, we're pretty agnostic uh, to what we, you know, proper nouns uh, into certain, you know, uh, 
which which brand we use and all that. Um, I use a password manager. Hector uses a password manager. You're not going to get either one of us to tell you which one it is uh, for security reasons. Um, there's no reason to to put it out there that it is. But Hector, why don't you give some advice to the listeners about you know cloud versus a physical uh, password manager? Sure. Just like anything you do, right? When it comes to your personal security, operational security, um, you know, limiting the potential for leakage, limiting the potential for an attacker abusing your resources or access or information, you have to do your due diligence. You have to look at the risks associated with both sides of the aisle, right? So if you go with a physical, rather, if you go with a local, locally hosted, like on your phone, on your laptop, on your internal network, um, password manager, that works very well, especially if you work from home. There's cons to that as well, right? The con is that if you're ever breached, meaning that someone sends you phishing emails and you click on the phishing email and they infect your computer, your endpoint with some sort of backdoor that's not detected by your antivirus, it's not detected by Windows Defender, right? There's a lot of steps in order for that to happen. But assuming the worst case scenario, since your password manager is hosted locally, then the attacker is likely to get access to those credentials that are hosted locally. If they're hosted on the internal network, let's say you buy yourself an Intel NUC or a Raspberry Pi and you set up um, you know, a, a password manager software on there, and there's several, okay? Then you could access your credentials through a plugin or an extension of your browser, which depending on who you speak to in the security industry, they'll tell you, well, that's not a good idea either, all right? In those situations, you have to really analyze the risk and analyze the worst case scenarios, and analyze your risk appetite, okay? Now, if you travel a lot, and you need access to your passwords as you're traveling for work, business, personal, whatever, um, then people will use, you know, they'll use a cloud service or they'll use their browser password manager, like from Chrome, for example, uh, or Firefox, which synchronizes with, um, you know, either your Gmail account or a backend service. Um, you could also use some of the other services out there, which I'm not going to mention because some of them have had security breaches recently. Um, so you have to do your due diligence, do your research, identify what is important to you, how much risk you're willing to take and accept, and then you go with that decision. So Joe writes in, and Joe is one of our best listeners, Hector. He writes, hey, Chris and Hector, still loving the show, and I listen to it first thing every Thursday morning. I actually have a listener question. Uh, is there an industry standard for patch installation on servers? I work on a program that's installed currently on Windows Service, moving to Linux soon, in government data centers. For obvious reasons, there has been questions about patch management and guaranteed update timeframes. Uh, is there an industry standard for this? Should critical patches be tested and approved for install in 48 hours or 30 days? What about non-critical patches? Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate your show greatly. So, Hector, what is your latest recommendations for your clients for patch management? Yeah, that's a great question, okay? And this question, unfortunately, has a lot of variables. It depends on industry. Okay, it depends on what framework you have to abide by. It depends if you have a cyber insurance policy and if that cyber insurance provider requires patch management. There's just there's, there's, there's not a lot of consistency. Okay, but let's assume that you know you follow or your organization follows the the NIST CSF, right? The National Institute of Standards and Technology and their cybersecurity framework. Um, and they have a guidelines. They have a set of guidelines for organizations to improve their posture like uh, asset management and system and communication protections, access control management, and so on and so forth, right? And so they, they, you know, is it regulated? Not so much. These are standards that are offered. But again, if you are part of an industry, let's say healthcare or financial, 
more than likely you are required to deal with patch management in a way that's consistent with their requirements. When I say requirements, it's either the specification, the regulation, the framework, um, or industry requirements that are needed. And I say industry requirements, I'm going to give you another example. If you are in the healthcare industry, um, you have to deal with uh, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or as you guys may know as HIPAA. Um, you should follow whatever standards that HIPAA defines or whatever cyber insurance policies um, that you know you have to abide by, you have to follow, or, or um, you might have a cyber insurance provider that says, hey, before we give you a premium, you, you need to prove to us that you have one, asset management, two, patch management, three, vulnerability management, four, um, policies around all of that, and of course, backup solutions, right? Um, so yes, you know, the one thing I'll tell you folks is as you're kind of building out what this looks like for your organization, you have to make sure you have an inventory. You have to have an inventory of all hardware and software assets within your organization. That is paramount, Okay. Now, you also have to start to prioritize patches based off of the severity. Again, you know, we've seen, when I do a pen test, I'll have a client, they're in healthcare, they're in finance, and they may have something like an end-of-life MS SQL server. I've, I think I've mentioned that example a few times because a lot of my clients have that. Now, the thing with that problem is that some clients, because of how big they are in the industry, they might have a special extended license with the vendor, in this case, Microsoft. Okay, so when I find and identify end of life system on the network, I have to report that as, hey, this is a critical issue. It's an end of life software. The client may come back to me and say, well, no, 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 hold on a second. We have an ex a special extended license with Microsoft, so we have another two years on this before this becomes critical. Right? Again, you have var variables to deal with. Yes, you need to test your patches. You should have at least one test patch per environment. So if you have Windows. Um, you know, Windows 11 systems for workstations and you have, you know, going back, let's say, let's say you're forced to deal with like Windows uh, 2016 sy uh, systems um, for the domain controllers. You want to have a system on the side that's not running, running critical um, infrastructure that you could test your patches on that's identical to what, what your current configurations are and then you apply those patches. Um, now, this is where it becomes difficult. Your question is actually difficult is... When do we patch? It depends on severity. It depends on exploitability. Okay? If there is a high severity issue, it's not as bad as critical, but it is exploitable, that probably holds priority over a non-exploitable critical severity issue. Context is important. Now, when do you patch? It depends. It really depends. If we're talking about a code red level vulnerability, if we're talking about like a solar wind supply chain attack issue, vulnerability, you probably need to patch post haste. You need to start doing testing as soon as the information comes into your inbox, right? And as it comes into your purview, you have to start testing and then eventually deploy that patch. Um, lower priority issues, you can, you can kind of work around, but it shouldn't be no more than 30 days past discovery, meaning past the disclosure. That's my take on it. Every company is different. And like I said, there's a ton of different variables. 
So um, this is something you guys have to figure out internally. It's funny. We bookmarked the show with patch management uh, talking 40 minutes about people that got their whole world turned upside down because they patched. Uh, and now we're talking about how, you know, Joe should patch immediately when something critical comes out. Uh, so, so it's a bit of a mixed message in cybersecurity, but uh, you know, I, I definitely agree with you, Hector, that patching critical uh, is is important uh, to get it out there as quick as possible. So, if you have questions for us, please reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector and I love answering your questions. Uh, merchandise, guys, go to hackerinthefed.com to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise, hoodies, t-shirts. Um, we had just recently added sweatshirts because uh, some people couldn't wear hoodies to work. Um, and we also do custom orders. Still working on hats, um, but that'll come soon. Um, you, can, I know, I know. You can get Hacker in the Fed logos. You can also get, that's a great question. We offer international shipping. Again, Hacker in the Fed to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise. Um, I think we got a bunch of people in the running for to get their free Hacker in the Fed merchandise. Um, we For Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Hacker and I have been running a contest to rewrite the opening of the show sort of gives the story of how we came together and what the podcast is about. Um, so if you'd like to do that, make a post on LinkedIn, include uh, 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 Hector, myself, Hacker in the Fed, and also Naxo into the post uh, and put it up there. And uh, starting November, we're going to start uh, reading some of them. We're going to start opening the show with some of your suggestions. And uh, the ones that we think are the best will get be able to pick out a free piece of merchandise that we'll have shipped out to you at from hackerinthefed.com. Um, so I will start connecting to with some of those people via their their emails or their LinkedIn accounts. So they've been looking good, though, Hector. Yeah, man, we're getting some posts. I'm very happy to see that. Big shout out to the folks that have, um, you know, engaged and, 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 and followed through with that. Um, I'm sure they'll be very happy to get some messages very soon. Sure, sure. So new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, I've enjoyed our conversation today, uh, and I hope you have very safe travels this week. Absolutely, man. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to our next chat. Cheers. Cheers, friend. Cheers.